think this is one of those things that I'm referring to where faith path becomes clearer the further down the path we walk. And in my case, I just knew I really wanted to help people. So I'm 14, right? I want to help people. I want to help people in ways that alleviate long-term suffering, long-term pain. Right? That's what my family was facing was there were short-term pain relievers for my brother's cancer and, and those challenges. But I wanted cures. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. All right, friends, today we have another special episode with my friend from college, Darrell Coleman. Darrell is the founder of DC Design, a social impact design firm that uses the design thinking process to better define community needs, develop strategy, and design solutions to some of America's most pressing social challenges. In his journey as a designer, Darrell has collaborated with international nonprofits, large tech companies, and small businesses to reduce mass incarceration, homelessness, economic inequality, black infant mortality, and more. He's a two-time alumnus of Stanford University and its famous Institute of Design, and he is an expert in multi-stakeholder human-centered design. He has been awarded the Jefferson Award for Public Service as a result of his work and is one of the subjects of the PBS documentary, Extreme by Design, which is used as a design thinking teaching aid all over the world. This is a two-part episode series. You know, when I start talking to my old friends, I can be long-winded, but it's really great. So in part one, we cover Darrell's upbringing, his purpose and his mission, and some of the pivots in his journey. And Darrell is just... He's such an inspiring human, and it was really great to reconnect with him and learn about the work that he's doing. And I just can't wait for you all to hear this conversation. So let's get to it. All right. I'm so excited to have you, Darrell, on the podcast. We've been talking about this for quite some time, so I'm just happy that we're here. We're going to be in conversation. And so just thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. I am honored to have been invited to be on your podcast. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. So yeah, I wanted to have you on the podcast for a number of reasons. And I think first, we somewhat grew up together because I think that college is definitely a very formative time of your life. And so you get to know people and get to know their personalities. And I have to say that I just loved getting to know you. I remember waking up, I think it was like 5 a.m., 6 a.m. workouts. We had double days. And you were just so enthusiastic and so positive. At first, I was also just confused and envious because I was like, why is this man so happy (laughs) to run these hills at 6 a.m.? But you were just encouraging and positive. And being a D1 athlete, and you know, it's a challenging time. And just your attitude was just always so inspirational. I would say that I know a little bit about younger Durrell, but I want to know more about little Durrell. So can you tell us about your childhood? Yeah. So I was born in Nebraska to two incredible parents. I've often described my parents as like the wind and the waves. 
And so my mom is like the wind. She has so many ideas. She is the positive uplifting spirit in any room, any space that she's in. She believes that anything is possible. No mountaintop is too high for the wind to reach. No distance is too far for the wind to travel. That's my mother. And my dad carries a lot of those qualities as well, but he is, he's like the waves methodical, consistent, always there. Like the waves pounded against rocks against the shore for millennia to create the beaches. Like that's my, that's my father. So very foundational people who raised me, son of a now retired Air Force master sergeant and, and my mother who's run numerous businesses throughout her life as well. But I, I was raised in a really both faith-based, but also standard American household in a lot of ways. My parents really emphasized this idea that you could go anywhere and you could become what you want to become. And they set standards for us as kids that we would play an instrument, we would play a sport. It didn't matter which one, but we would do those things. We would do well in school. And so they just, they really set a standard for us as kids. But as a child myself, I was a nerd, a nerdy kid. (laughs) If you told my parents that I would have a an athletic scholarship to college years later as well. They would have believed it only because they believe so much in their in their children. But if you looked at me from the outside, it'd been like that kid's not doing sports, right? I was just <laughs> I was clumsy, and my thing was science. I was doing science experiments in my kitchen since you know I was a child. I had dreams of building my own science lab when I was a kid, and my parents warded that one off. They didn't think me being outside blowing things up in a room alone was a good idea. So. That was a lot of my my early days was doing science experiments, really consuming anything that I possibly could. They challenged me when I had questions to go look things up. And so I became someone who always wanted to know more about why something was the way that it was. And I think a lot of times folks are pushed away from asking why, and I was pushed toward asking why. Mm. It's really helpful. And then as a child, I also grew up with two siblings. So I had a younger sister, have a younger sister and an older brother as well, who shaped a lot of my path. I love that. I love just hearing about your parents. They sound incredible and amazing. And I love that you did mention that you were a nerd. That was the other thing I was going to say, but I didn't want to embarrass you. (laughs) (laughs) But I also just remember you being a little lighthearted and nerdy and really into anime. And I was like, what is Darrell talking about? But so I love that that's a part of your childhood as well. And you said something interesting, you know, your brother shaped a lot of your path. What does that mean? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think a big part of the story of where he comes into the work that I do, the career work, it can be helpful to tell aspects of it through that story. Yeah. When I was eight, my mom asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I wanted to be an inventor. He said, how are you going to make money? I said, I'm going to have my own company one day that makes things and sells them. And the time I was dreaming of making flying cars. I wanted to be on Oprah. I was super aware that she was going to be going off the air one day. It was 2011. I remember the year she went off the air. And <laughs> so I was counting down throughout my teenage years and, and beyond. Hasn't happened yet, but maybe, maybe one day. But that was this dream that I was given. And I honestly think it was a God given dream. This desire to create and invent things. I can look back on my family and see my dad was a he was a mechanic in many ways. That's what he really was. So he was in, in the Air Force. He worked on planes in the Air Force, but he worked on cars otherwise. So mm. we were always building something and making something. And for me, the vision of my life was, I don't want to build and make things or fix things. I want to invent things. I want to create new things. And I think about 
though both of them together, it's kind of a combination of my mother who has a million ideas and my dad who has this sort of making intuition too. So that was when I was eight. And when I was nine, my family had moved to Texas where I grew up. And really challengingly, my older brother was diagnosed with cancer. So he was five years older than me. And he was my hero. He was like the person I wanted to become. He was the person I wanted to beat. I wanted to, I told you to tell him I would graduate high school before him. And he would just look at me. He's like, you're like five. What are you talking about? Like, go away, you know? And he was, you know, he was a whole five years older than me. But that's that nerdy kid in me who was like, I'm coming for you. <laughs> you're just talking to someone who's twice your size saying, I'm coming for you. And, and they look at you and laugh. But he was incredible in that he was diagnosed with cancer. And it was a really challenging time for us and our family. He went into remission after that. He really chose to pour into me and my sister after he could have become a solitary person who went off to be with himself. And and he didn't do that. He just, I, I honestly think he didn't know where that was going to end up. He fought cancer for five years and had a, a number of times where it seemed like everything was going to be okay. But even during those times, he was always showing me something, teaching me something, giving me something, sharing something with me. Mm. And he was one of the most positive people that I have ever met. He was also a trailblazer. He went and just did the things that brought light to himself and to others all the time. For some context as well, right? We are a Black family who have moved from Nebraska to Texas. And the town that we went moved to, predominantly white town, he had to make his own path in that town in a space that wasn't used to him, wasn't used mm -hmm. to someone like him who spoke like him and who moved like him. And, and he did. And he set an example for me in many ways of like, how do you move through a world that isn't always, wasn't always designed for you to start with, right? Wasn't always set up for you, isn't always expecting you. How do you show up in that space and be who you are in a way that is powerful and radiant and positive for other people? And so there are a number of elements to that story that sort of speak more to career later on. But that is who my brother was to me. He was, he's still a role model and mentor to me. And I'm so much older than he ever was now. Um, you know, he passed away at 19. I was 14 years old at the time. And I still look up to him. Wow. Uh, I just, I love that so much. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I can definitely just see how you're a reflection of your brother and a reflection of your parents and how all that comes together. Usually my next question is, how did his little Durrell show up in the work that you're doing today? But you've really just explained, even just starting at eight years old, knowing that you wanted to invent something and then having that mix with your brother's inspiration and that positive attitude and making a way for himself. Like it sounded like you were describing yourself, which was interesting. I mean, you were describing your brother to me. You were describing yourself in the way that I see you. And the way that I think that your friends see you and your family and your colleagues. So that's beautiful. And I am curious about DC design because when we were in college, I didn't know about any of these aspirations. I knew about your track life and anime and Darrell being fun and a leader and silly, but you've had these big dreams. So tell us about how you made this dream a reality. Yeah. So a little bit about, you know, that journey when I was eight, like I said, I wanted to be an inventor and I was certain, but I told my mom and that was the passion that I, I held on to. I wanted to make those flying cars and win awards and be on Oprah. And when my brother was diagnosed, it, it set me down a different path. It brought me closer to my family. 
both my brother and my sister and my parents. And it also made me start to question, especially when he passed away, like, what is the purpose of this life? Why are we here? What are we here to do? What's the point of doing any of this stuff? And I was depressed after his passing. My grades had slipped that year in particular, but I was grappling with this existential question of like, what's the meaning of life at age 14? And I both see that as like a really challenging thing for a 14-year-old to go through, but also an incredible gift that I received in my life. And so I decided during that time, as I was looking for light, really looking for light to move toward, that there was light. Light does exist when you are focused on the souls of other people. And you're focused on these moments of laughter, these moments of levity, things that pull people out of their lowest places, their darkest places. My brother, even while he was at his sickest, was still the like life of the room. He was still the person who was lifting people out of their own personal problems, even if you could argue that their problems didn't weigh up against the ones he was facing right then, right? And I'm inspired by that. To this day, I am most inspired by people overcoming challenges in their own life, people finding their own God-given potential that they didn't know they had. It's like stories of, of mothers lifting cars off their kids in storms because of how much they love them. Like they have yeah. to do this. Like I have to do this, right? That moves me to tears. It's acts of kindness and love that make me emotional, right? So I decided at 14 that I would still be an inventor. I would be someone who created new things in the world, but I would Focus on the people who were forgotten, the ones who were often overlooked or who hadn't been designed for. And the reason, you know, in many ways, it's like I was going to the hospital as a the nine-year-old, 10-year-old, all the way through age 14. And then I would go back to my middle school and my high school. And no one was having the conversations my family was having. No one was talking about kids in cancer wards or kids who are terminally ill or families who were grappling with the furthest reaches of medicine that didn't go far enough. So I came back with this realization that there's a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of things we haven't figured out. And there's a lot of people who we're not having a mainstream conversation about solving problems for. I've seen the other side of that. So I'm going to go be the one who solves problems for those people and with those people. And so I resolved that that's what I would do. I would still build my company. And I set off through high school, really deeply became grounded in my faith. During that time, you know, even this morning, I was just thinking about some of the most miraculous times in my life have been ones where I, I knew this general direction, but I didn't know what the next step looked like. I just trusted that I should move forcefully in that direction. And at the end of high school, I had a culmination of just so many successful sort of indicators. But to me, I look back on them and a lot of them were the signs that pointed to the future. So I would accept that Stanford was one of the big ones which I think is one of the best places in the world to learn to build a company and to learn the specific skill set I needed to do the work I needed to do, which was design thinking and human centered design. Wow. So I love that. I think you're right. You know, Stanford is such an enterprising place. It's where I actually learned about social entrepreneurship. I remember taking a course on it and just really falling in love with the concept. And did you know about social enterprises going into Stanford? Was there a specific class? Tell us about when you got the actual idea to use the design thinking and human design and use your background in that work and pair it with the social justice and the equity work and trying to 
essentially create a better world for specifically marginalized communities and the people that are forgotten. Yeah. I didn't know what social entrepreneurship was. I didn't think that that was a thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think this is one of those things that I'm referring to where faith path becomes clearer the further down the path you walk. And in my case, I just knew I really wanted to help people. So I'm 14, right? I want to help people. I want to help people in ways that alleviate long-term suffering, long-term pain. Right? That's what my family was facing was there were short-term pain relievers for my brother's cancer and, and those challenges. But I wanted cures, right? I wanted long-term solutions. And when I think about the world that we are in, our society, we're really good at the short-term solutions, especially my home state of Texas. Very good at feeding people at the moment when they need food, right? Providing clothes for people when sometimes when they're most at need. But a lot of those are transient. I wanted to ask the question like, what will I do tomorrow? Or what will these people do tomorrow? So the volunteer opportunities around painting windows or working at a soup kitchen, those things just didn't, they didn't fulfill me the way that I, I was hoping for. And so I sought, I said, even as a student, like I'm going to build a company that tries to solve these problems in the long run. So before I ever heard of social enterprise or entrepreneurship, before I ever knew what design thinking was, I was seeking to create something that could create lasting change in the world. And I didn't have any models for how to do that, really. The next question that came up that I was frequently asked was, you want to become Thomas Edison? How do you do that? How do you just become an inventor? And people would ask that to me almost like angrily, like, like you, that's not a career. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an inventor. That's not a career. Like, you have to say one of these things. You have to be a doctor, you have to be a lawyer, you have to be a nurse, you have to be a, you know, these prescribed things we've heard of, not like that thing over there. And what happened was when I got to Stanford, I was taking mechanical engineering classes. And there was a class where we were told to list 100 problems in the world. And so I go about this and listing all these problems, these things that are super obvious to me. It's like cracks in the sidewalk when I'm skateboarding. It's my clothes don't dry all the way in my university dryers. It was a bunch of very not big challenges that I was facing. <laughs> and at number 67 or so, I ran out of problems to list. I was like, I'm done. I don't have anything else. But the next one was poverty. Right? And then it was, oh, hurricanes. And then it was wildfires. And it was all these big events that are going to happen that we are not really prepared for. We know hurricanes are going to rip through the southeastern United States still to this day, next year. And the question was, what are we designing and creating to make sure that people's lives can be preserved, saved during that time? We know that wildfires are tearing through California and, and Canada is on fire right now. And what are we doing? What are we inventing? What are we creating? And so one of the first hints for me on how do you become an inventor was that you focus on solving problems for people and defining what those problems were. And then the next question became, well, how do I learn more about those problems? And that took me further down the path of this. Oh, I love it. And you said that too about what your parents instilled in you, you know, just asking the questions and problem solving. And that was something that you did, yes, as we're connecting the dots <laughs> at an early age. And so it's showing up in the work that you're doing today and you're trying to solve really, really huge problems. And I am curious about one of the problems 
that you're trying to solve through the work that you're doing? Is there a particular case study that you can talk to us about or a specific issue that you're trying to solve? Wherever you want to take this, but yeah. Let me connect a few dots to maybe what I do now, because I, you know, your podcast is no straight path. And I think I would emphasize or underscore that the path has not been straight to get to where I'm at. I wanted to be an inventor, right? And I wanted to solve problems for folks who are often forgotten. I learned this method called design thinking, which really says, if you want to solve problems for people, you should talk to them first. And I know it's a miraculous concept, but (laughs) it's something that's often forgotten when we create things. A lot of times it's easier to sit in a room alone and come up with an idea that's going to solve someone else's problem. We've all been around a table before where we we come up with the cure to homelessness. We, We find the solution to poverty. We've invented the thing that everyone needs, but we can't actually be sure of that unless we talk to real people. And so I was on this path of creating products, and my focus was largely on folks in developing countries, industrializing countries. So I designed wind turbines to generate power for folks in in Nicaragua. I designed a water catchment storage system for an island community in Nicaragua. I founded a company doing that right after college as well, specifically for the wind turbine. And after several years of working on this, building out the technology, thinking about what I needed to make, talking with the population, my company failed. It failed because the market that I was aiming to serve originally was not the market that I tried to serve through the company itself. I tried to bring this product to the United States and serve a US client and ultimately got away from the principles of design thinking. And so I had this big moment in my life where I reset. I realized that I didn't know how to run a company. I didn't know how to build a company. I had never sold a product to anyone before. I'd never even built a website before. And yet I was trying to change the entire world from that vantage point, running a lot on on confidence and and hope, right? Mm -hmm. And so over through a process of returning to my own center, thinking of something I wanted to design for myself, which were these laser cut and engraved world maps, some friends ended up seeing those, ended up purchasing the first version of the maps that I ever sold. These maps led to the creation of a Kickstarter campaign. I was able to raise about $15,000 with that. I was able to start a laser cutting and engraving contract manufacturing business in my bedroom there. And that was actually the beginning of my first sort of profitable business self was something completely unrelated to what we're talking about right now. Wow. Wow. So you've already had two companies before DC Design. Is that correct? Yeah, you could say that. Many of them have similar names. The first one that failed was DC Revolutions. The second one was called DC Design, but you're right. It's a different company. We did something completely different than this. So I did that for a while while I was sort of resting. I was kind of recovering from what I had done before. I was also tutoring kids. I did that for a while, started teaching design thinking and built that all the way up as a way of solving problems. I was teaching that to executives in the Bay Area. I was teaching that to people from Oracle and Fujifilm and Santander and all these places when I realized that this was not fulfilling the purpose that I had in life. And I shifted focus to say, okay, my wind turbines didn't succeed. That was my purpose. Mm. What is my new purpose? Who is my population? Who do I want to serve? And I turned my attention to the US to say, what are the challenges that we face here that we're often not seeing. And that took me in a new direction. I declared that I was only doing social impact projects from then on. 
and through my network ended up working on foster care system. Wow. Wow. Okay. So I love that. Thank you for connecting the dots for us too, just because I think it's extremely important to show the entire journey and how you had to test and iterate and really had this as, yeah, no pun intended, but no straight path to the work that you're doing today. Because I think sometimes a lot of people will see things on social media, we'll see an article, you know, you have been in the press doing great things for the community, but you had businesses before that and you were testing. And as you said, one failed. And so I love that you were able to come back to your purpose, to doing the work that is important to you, that is honoring your values, honoring your brother, your parents, your faith. And you did mention faith. You've mentioned it actually a few times. And so I am just curious about how that shows up in your life today and the work that you're doing. Yeah. So we, as a company, we are focused on eliminating multi-generational poverty. Our goal is to uplift Black, Brown, and low-income communities. We want everyone to have a full shot at the American dream. I believe in the ideals that America writes down on paper, that it wants to stand for fully. And yet we have not built a society that has lived up to that promise yet. We do not have equal pathways for everyone. We do not have equal opportunity for everyone. We have finally largely eliminated the laws, most of the laws, that explicitly prohibit people from rising to the level that they could rise to. There are all sorts of historical challenges that we're dealing with now that need to be addressed in order to get us to where we need to get to. That journey, that work is inspired by a type of faith and a type of empathy that I learned from both my mom and my sister. Mm. When I was a kid, my mom, I would forget things a lot. I'd forget things at home and my mom would bring them up to the school. Be my backpack. I love or, moms. <laughs> or, I, I, honestly, I, it's, it's incredible. Um, me too. So it would be my backpack or my school uniform or a form that needed to be signed or whatever it was. And she would come up and often she would end up coming up around lunchtime and she'd walk into the cafeteria and my town wasn't super big. We had one high school, so almost everyone knew each other. And as we'd walk out, I'd go to give her a hug and she'd say, did you see that kid sitting alone in the cafeteria? And I was like, no, I didn't. I'm busy. Like I'm doing other things. Right. But over time it started to seep in. Like I did notice the kid sitting alone in the cafeteria. I noticed the other kid who got bullied. I noticed the kids who just weren't treated the same way as other people. And then my sister has this profound, deeply personal and empathetic side to her. She's always been incredibly caring, caring of me and caring of others in a way that is very admirable. And I don't think these were qualities I would have described little Durrell as having. Like he was very like survival of the fittest. Like, here we go. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna win. But those qualities became things that I really, really started to focus on. When I think of faith, I think that faith most aligns in many ways with those qualities. It aligns with the quality of noticing the people who have not been noticed. It aligns with the recognition that my soul is no better than anyone else's soul. So when I walk past someone on the street, I can't ignore you. You have worth, you have value, you have inherent value. And it has nothing to do with what you have or haven't done in life. It has everything to do with the fact that you exist. It's who you are. The true you, the true all of us is not what we do for our career. It's not the job that we have. It's not the letters next to our name. It's 
the soul that breathes through our body. And that is what I care about when I do this work. So when we're working to eliminate Black infant mortality, there's so much soul in that work. There's the babies themselves. There's the families who are grieving at times. There's the families who would grieve. There's the parents. There's just, if you can feel someone yearning for their child, that's what motivates me to get up and, and to do this work, is to see the humanity in people and with that humanity, the sort of divinity in people. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember... You're not alone.